Good morning. It's Saturday, the 9th of December, and this is Govind Rajethri Raj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital, continuing to seek the first signs of winter, which of course may never come. You can join this podcast at 6 a.m. weekdays in Delhi, 8:30 a.m. in Singapore, and 7:30 p.m. in New York. Our top stories and themes for the day: The Reserve Bank of India leaves rates unchanged, raises GDP projection to 7%. The Nifty powers ahead of 21,000 and the Sensex is close to 70,000 as the markets continue their run. China sees the biggest institutional investor outflow since 2001. Apple hits the gas pedal on India production once again. And onion exports are curtailed even as wheat reserves fall. This is a core report with Govind Raj Athiraj. Good morning. We're back again today. We could not record our Friday morning episode, so we are now doing a special episode for Saturday and since there was so much news and of course we will continue and be back on Monday morning. The Reserve Bank of India held key rates for a fifth consecutive time even as it raised its growth forecast for the year 2324 or that's the current year. The Reserve Bank of India Monetary Policy Committee kept the repo rate unchanged at 6.5% and also maintained the inflation forecast unchanged at 5.4%. However, it raised GDP forecast for the year to 7% from the earlier 6.5% and we'll spend a little more time on that shortly. Now, that 6.5% was the earlier figure like I said, but the 7% is a little at variance with most other economists are saying. But back on interest rates, the Reserve Bank appears to be waiting to see what direction the rest of the world takes. More on the Reserve Bank shortly again, but the markets meanwhile, still riding on that political continuity factor, took it all in good spirit. The NSE Nifty 50 zoomed past the 21,000 mark to hit a high of 21,006 before ending 68 points up at 20,969. The Nifty has already gained about 3.5% this week and is on course to post its longest weekly winning streak in 3 years. The BSE Sensex, meanwhile, inched towards the 70,000 mark today, hit an all-time high at 69,894 before closing 304 points higher at 69,825. The Reserve Bank of India's Monetary Policy Committee kept the repo rate unchanged at 6.5% for the fifth time in a row on Friday. In its biannual policy announcement, the Reserve Bank of India Governor Shakti Kanta Das said that the decision that's in the Monetary Policy Committee was unanimous. He did caution, however, that the near-term forecast remains uncertain owing to food inflation, which may lead to an uptick in headline inflation figures in November and December. And the core report has lots on food, but that's later in the show. Food inflation does seem to rear its head more than periodically and usually has the government scrambling to impose export controls as it just did with onions whose prices are now up almost 58% in a month. Tomato prices are up sharply too by the way. So the Reserve Bank of India has now raised the repo rate by about 250 basis points between May last year and February this year in an effort to cool surging inflation. which now has dropped to a 4 month low of 4.87 in october this year on inflation by the way the monetary policy committee kept the forecast unchanged the retail inflation forecast has been kept like i mentioned earlier at 5.4% 
So to get a sense on how the street received the Reserve Bank of India policy, I reached out to Vivek Kumar, economist at Mumbai-based Quant Eco Research, and I began by asking him why rates were not coming down as yet. So thanks, Govind, for having me on the show. I think that's one pertinent question, which is on every investor's mind, whether the investor is domestic or foreign, because the question is something which is pertinent across the globe. Most of the central banks are currently at the peak of the monetary policy cycle. And investors globally are trying to second guess as to when would there be a turn in the monetary policy cycle. Now, as far as India is concerned, the forward guidance is something that RBI has been shy of giving repeatedly. And this is something that the governor has said very often that in this era of volatility, forward guidance is something that they would restrain. So while that might be a time-dependent guidance, the RBI nevertheless has been sounding off some state-dependent guidance. By state-dependent guidance, I mean, if this happens, then you could expect something like that. So let's say, what is that state-dependent guidance which might have some sort of a bearing on when the monetary policy is going to pivot? And for me, the most important state-dependent guidance is of visibility on the durability of 4% inflation target. So as of now, if you see the recent forecasts by the RBI, they are in between 4 and 5% handle for Q2 and Q3 of the next financial. So those are two consecutive quarters of below 5%. I think what would give them much more confidence and much more comfort as a policymaking committee is the fact that you eventually drift lower towards 4% and kind of stay there for some more time. So is that time going to be three quarters or four quarters? I think it's a matter of choice. But clearly, two quarters is not sufficient. This is what comes out clearly. And the moment that happens, when they start projecting 4% inflation on a somewhat, you would see a turn in the monetary policy cycle. Right. And, you know, if I were to ask you to, let's say, give me like a, you know, a 50, 50, 40, 60 probability of India being influenced by what's happening by other central banks, what would it be? Typically, there is certain degree of co-movement between monetary policy cycles across the world. And if you see it between developed countries, in which case, you know, top two or three central banks, like the Federal Reserve, Bank of Japan, and maybe Bank of India, they kind of set the tone for the global monetary policy cycle. Now, it's fair to assume that the direction in which the policies are moving globally, India's policy rate will also move in that direction. Now, whether there is a one-to-one correspondence between monetary policy response in developed markets and in countries like India is something which is up for debate because in the previous regimes, when we did not have an inflation target, I guess the co-movement was fairly larger, fairly deeper. In the current environment, I think we have our own set of governing principles and those governing principles have now become binding. So in some sense, you are governed more by your domestic legal mandate, which the parliament, which the government of the day has given you to follow. Now, there can be spillovers. So if there are monetary policy cycles which have a depreciating impact on your currency, then MPC or the RBI will take necessary steps to thwart that. But for me, I think the bigger picture is that you are governed by your own set of legal mandate. And there will be spillovers, but these spillovers would not be influencing to that extent where it has an overriding bearing on the monetary. Right. The other data point is obviously the growth rate, which the Reserve Bank is now projecting at 7%, which is higher than the 65 earlier. 
Now, the 6.5 seem to align, as I could see, with most other forecasts, but 7 is going a step ahead. So, are you as confident as the Reserve Bank on this? You know, there are two ways of looking at it. One is to market your own forecast with respect to what happened as far as the Q2 GDP is concerned. So everybody on the street was uh, substantially surprised in the positive direction from the Q- Q2 GDP data. So once you start MTME or the once you incorporate that mark-to-market adjustment to your forecast, your full-year GDP growth estimate goes up by roughly 30 basis points. So if RBI was at 6.5% before the Q2 GDP data release, post-Q2 GDP data release, everything else remaining constant, the full-year growth will automatically get adjusted to 6.8. Now, the fact that they've gone ahead of that, which is not stopped at 6.8 and went above and now projected 7% GDP growth, tells you that now RBI also expects a higher momentum in case of both Q3 as well as Q4 GDP growth. So that's something which is somewhat higher than what the street is expecting. But given the recent set of positive surprises, and so far, one or two indicators, the key indicators which have come out for Q3, especially for the month of October, kind of suggests that the momentum is continuing. So, for example, core sector data came out pretty strong. Your GST numbers are still continuing at a healthy pace. The CAPEX spending by state and central governments are still running at a very healthy pace. So, some key indicators, the initial ones, there is still a whole host of indicators which are left. But the initial picture that one gets is that the momentum has kind of continued, at least uh, as far as the month of October is concerned. So you could extrapolate some spillover momentum to Q3 as well. And there is a likelihood that growth can continue to surprise on the upside. So 7% is something I would say, while yes, it is higher than the street consensus at this point in time. But something which definitely cannot be ruled out from a statistical point of view. So it's within the realm of possibility, although it is higher than what the street is. Got it. So anything that caught your attention apart from the inflation and growth and interest rate numbers that we all saw? Well, definitely. I think December was all about relief. So October, if I can take you back, October was a policy in which nothing changed dramatically. Everything was unchanged. But the cat was let loose among the pigeons when the governor said that we, are, we can consider selling government bonds to curb liquidity surplus from the system. And despite nothing changing, just the fact that the governor said that this is something which they are actively considering, the yields shot up by 10 to 15 basis points across the horizon. So by not doing anything, RBI implicitly went for a rate hike in uh, the month of October. The month of December, all those concerns about the RBI doing an open market operation sale, which is essentially selling government bonds to curb liquidity surplus on the system, was downplayed. So although the governor has said that option continues to remain on the table, but now it is kind of, RBI is hinting that it is no longer under active consultation because liquidity conditions have evolved to an extent that they probably do not require a very active policy intervention from the RBI in the form of government bond sales. So that's a big relief. That's a big relief because the market was dying in a state of confusion as to why exactly was this announcement made in October? Was there a need to tighten a policy via the back door to open market operations? 
And now those concerns have ebbed. I think the biggest takeaway from me would be that this policy has provided relief in that. Vivek, thank you so much for joining me. Banks cut back lending to fintech. Meanwhile, there is a bit of a runaway consumption boom which the Reserve Bank of India, to its credit, has woken up early and reasonably so. This consumption boom, which of course helps the economy and all the projections we make in it and of it, has been fueled to, or a good part by, small loans and runs into hundreds of thousands of crores. The fintech greased and fueled personal loan frenzy has seen the Reserve Bank of India wave red flags in a series of warnings, almost like a railway conductor on a platform trying to warn an engine driver that the train is going too fast or the train will crash. The Reserve Bank of India has cautioned several times and also raised risk weightages on such loans which include credit cards. Meanwhile, Reuters is reporting that top Indian banks and non-bank lenders have asked their fintech partners to curtail issuing tiny personal loans or small loans weeks after the Central Bank or Reserve Bank of India clamped down on this business. One such fintech PTM said it would go slow on sub-50,000 rupee loans on Wednesday and it was the first to announce such a move since the Reserve Bank of India told banks to set aside more capital to cover personal loans or raise risk weightages. Now, this move would have appeared like a preemptive move of genius, except that the markets got the drift and hammered the Paytm stock about 20% in the last two days. So the language that follows is actually quite interesting, if not even shocking. While we don't intend to completely back out or cut back funding to fintech partners at this point, we've expressed our discomfort towards them going big on small ticket personal loans said another banker with a private sector bank to Reuters. So now reading between the lines, this banker seems to be saying that they almost want to have nothing to do with fintechs, who of course provide the grease and ease for small loans and are in some ways responsible for their growth and perhaps rapid expansion. The Reserve Bank of India also appears to be, and quite rightly, focusing as much on the social side of the problem of unbridled borrowing, mostly and presumably by young people. Reuters again reported in a separate and insightful article in October written by Ira Dugal that delinquencies for loans under 50,000 rupees were at 8.1% as of June this year and this is above the 1.4% bad loan ratio for all retail loans as of March 2023. That's according to the latest RBI data. The total value of loans below 10,000 rupees grew 37% in the financial year ending March 31st, 23, while loans in the 10 to 50,000 rupee band grew 48% according to data from CRIF that Reuters quoted. And now our energy segment in partnership with the India Energy Week. Oil continues to trade weak. Oil is still stuttering on the way down to hold near a five-month low as concerns about excess supplies continued. West Texas Intermediate closed at about $69 a barrel or a 11% drop over six sessions which is the longest run of daily losses since February, while Brent settled around $74 a barrel. That's the number we look more at, which is the lowest since June, according to Bloomberg. Traders have been expecting high crude exports from the United States and other non-organization of petroleum exporting countries or OPEC producers, adding to greater volumes of lighter barrels across the globe. Now, this in turn has negated the effect of a decision by producers in the OPEC Plus group to curb output into 2024. We've been discussing at the core, as you know, about how continuous threats by the OPEC countries to cut supplies are not impacting prices, at least so far, and almost seem to be having the opposite effect. One reason, of course, being that demand projections continue to be weak. 
Meanwhile, Reuters pointed out that oil benchmarks were headed for a seventh straight weekly decline on worries of global supply surplus and weak Chinese demand. Though prices did recover somewhat on Friday after Saudi Arabia and Russia called for even more OPEC plus members to join. Speaking of demand, India's overall fuel demand has dropped 2% year-on-year in November, driven by a 3% decline in diesel sales, the Economic Times reported quoting Petroleum Ministry data. Petrol and jet fuel sales, however, grew around 10% in November over the same period last year, thanks to increased leisure travel in the festival season, which has just ended. Strong vehicle sales, says the Economic Times, also contributed to petrol sales, which in turn accounts for about 17% of the country's overall refined product sales volume. But sales of diesel, which powers the economy in a manner of speaking and makes up 40% of overall volumes, contracted in November after rising 6.6% in the April to October period. The energy segment is supported by the India Energy Week to be held from February 6th next year. Details are at www.indiaenergyweek.com. The China Syndrome The amount of money that institutional investors have in Chinese stocks and bonds has declined by more than $31 billion this year through October, the biggest net outflow since China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, according to official Chinese data the Wall Street Journal is reporting. Interestingly, hedge funds including Bridgewater Associates, whose founder Ray Dalio has been a China bull for long, have significantly reduced their holdings of Chinese securities. Private equity firms including Carlyle have slashed fundraising targets for their Asia funds or stopped raising China-oriented funds altogether, the Wall Street Journal is saying. Moreover, mutual fund managers such as Vanguard and Van Eck Associates have either pulled out or aborted their China plans. Over the past decade, private equity funds targeting China have raised an average of nearly $100 billion a year. And so far this year, they've apparently raised only a meager $4.3 billion, according to data firm Prequin, quoted by the Wall Street Journal. Bitcoin is no coin. Sticking with institutional investors and one major one who also made a highly publicized visit to India recently, JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon has trashed Bitcoin and its peers, suggesting in remarks on Wednesday that cryptocurrencies should be banned. I've always been deeply opposed to crypto, Bitcoin, etc., the head of the largest US bank by assets said under questioning from Senator Elizabeth Warren during a Senate Banking Committee hearing. The only true use case for it is criminals, drug traffickers, money laundering, tax avoidance, Dimon said, and added quite dramatically, if I was the government, I'd close it down. Now, these remarks form part of the latest set of attacks from Dimon against cryptocurrencies, though his bank, as his critics point out, is heavily involved in blockchain, the enabling technology for the $1.6 trillion industry. In previous statements, Dimon has called Bitcoin a hyped-up fraud, a comment he apparently later walked back. And he also likened it to a pet rock. But Dimon and several other CEOs of large banks brought before this committee that I just referred to as part of a routine hearing on the industry agreed that crypto companies should face the same anti-money laundering regulations as the major financial institutions, CNBC reported. Whether or not JP Morgan has walked forward or backward on Bitcoin, as its and Jamie Dimon's critics point out, the fact is that on this instrument, if one were to call it that, he would find ready supporters and sympathizers in India's own regulators, including the Reserve Bank of India, which has thrown up its hands on more than one occasion. 
and Apple expands further in India. Apple and its suppliers aim to build more than 50 million iPhones in India annually within the next two to three years, which could make India account for a quarter of global iPhone production, Reuters is reporting. China would, of course, in the foreseeable future, remain the largest iPhone producer. Apple and its suppliers, led by the Taiwan-based Foxconn Technology Group, believe that the initial push into India has gone well and want to now expand, Reuters reported. The final phase of a Foxconn plant spread over 300 acres is under construction in Bangalore or rather near Bangalore in Karnataka and is expected to start operating in April. The plant aims to make about 20 million mobile handsets annually, mostly iPhones. Global iPhone shipments last year totaled about 220 million, according to research firm CounterPoint, and a number that's remained steady in recent years. Foxconn could also set up another iPhone-producing mega plant with capacity similar to the one in Karnataka. Foxconn also said last month that it was investing the equivalent of more than $1.5 billion in the country. This, to my understanding, is subsequent investment and not the aggregate. And from apples to onions. Onions have joined India's list of food products facing export restrictions as the government tries to stabilize runaway domestic prices ahead of a national election next year. Overseas shipments of onions will be banned until March 31st, although cargoes of vegetables that started loading prior to that notification can still be exported, the government said Friday and reported Bloomberg. The onion ban comes a day after India restricted the use of sugarcane juice to produce biofuels or ethanol, a move obviously aimed at expanding reserves of sugarcane. Now, this move, of course, follows curbs on wheat, which started last year, and rice, which started earlier this year. The ethanol ban will also affect the government's own ethanol fuel blending target, 15% this year, compared to 12% achieved last year and 20% targeted in six years. Out of the total ethanol production, roughly 28% is from sugarcane juice, which also fetches a maximum price for sugar mills at about 65 rupees a litre. Now, this move could affect earnings of sugar mills, with stock prices already having fallen after the decision. So some half of the ethanol comes from sugar byproduct B-heavy molasses, which the government has not banned. Meanwhile, staying with food and related, Reuters is reporting that India's wheat inventories at state warehouses have dropped to 19 million tonnes, the lowest in 17 years. Two years of falling production has forced state-run agencies to sell more grain to private players. India is the world's second biggest wheat producer and banned exports last year. That's it from me for this Saturday morning special edition. See you Monday, same time. Have a great weekend. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>